Whenever I read about the Old Testament stories of God delivering uh, Israel from captivity from, from Egypt, uh, I'm always amazed or probably more astonished uh, when, whenever I see their response. Uh, after hundreds of years of imprisonment, of slavery, full of brutality and suffering and despicable conditions, the moment that the people are set free, they almost immediately want to go back again. And this is hard for me to be able to get my mind around, but this is what we see in the Old Testament. In fact, almost immediately when they are uh, delivered, they begin to complain to Moses, why did you take us out of that? In fact, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 12, the people cried out to Moses, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In other words, it would have been better for us to remain in slavery than for us to be free unto God. And then later in, in Numbers chapter 11, we find out that the more time that goes on, that the people not only want to go back, but they begin to romanticize what it was like when they were in bondage. And they begin to cry out in unison, oh, that we could eat meat, or there was meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and garlic, but now our strength is, is dried up, and there is nothing at all but the manna to look at. It seems like God's people, the more difficulties that they faced in the freedom in this life unto God, the more they begin to want to go back to the way that things used to be before they were ever set free. I don't understand that, but it seems to be a consistent pattern in the Word of God. Because it wasn't only for those in the Old Testament, it's what's happening here with the Galatians as well. In the story of the Galatians, we, we find that they too were set free. They were pagans, they were worshiping pagan idols, and, 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 and they were in bondage to that, and, and trying to do everything they can to work just enough so that they would be received and, 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 and treated fairly by those gods, and, and yet they heard the gospel and eventually they were set free from that. Uh, they were set free because they heard that, hey, bro, it's not, it's not anything you do or anything you can do to work yourself in right standing before God. The only way for you to be in right standing before God is to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And this is precisely what they did. This is the faith that they had. But Paul says, but as soon as they come to that faith and experience that type of freedom, it's not time at all before they want to go back again. They want to go back to the way that it used to be. They want to go back to idolatry. They want to go back to be enslaved by, by, by really uh, trying to earn their way in right standing before God. And he says, guys, this isn't the way that it ought to be. You can't go back. You, you shouldn't go back to the way that it used to be. And so what he begins to do is he tries to convince them and us to keep living in freedom of God and in the grace of God and not going back to some legalistic system of working and trying to keep right before God by reminding them of two things. First of all, he reminds them of where they came, and then he reminds them of where God had brought them. So let's look at those two things before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. First of all, he reminds them of where they came. Look at verse 8. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. He says formerly. In other words, he's trying to say, he's trying to bring them back to a time that they weren't believers in Christ. They hadn't been set free. They hadn't placed their faith in Christ. And he, and he says, before you, he says, when you did not know God, that phrase, know God, is used throughout the New Testament as a synonym for salvation. 
Uh, if people know God, then they're born again. That's how the Bible presents that. And, and so, so even Jesus used this term synonymously when he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 3. He prayed this to the Father. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So eternal life is knowing God. If you know God, do you then for have eternal life? There are many times when I'm just sharing with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and I say, how did you come to faith in Christ? What was your life like before you came to become a believer and to follow after Jesus? And every once in a while, somebody will say something like this. They will say, well, I always believed. Ever since I was a little kid, I always believed. I always believed in the gospel. There was never a time that I didn't believe or place my faith in Christ, which, of course, is always an awkward conversation because then I have to say, so you're saying you're Jesus. That's what you're saying. You're saying that you were born justified. You were born righteous. And, and then, you know, then I have to say, no, you were born a sinner like all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then I have to just begin to share with them, hey, no, you were born a sinner. Even though that period of your life may have been short as a child, there was a time that you were not in the faith. There were a time that you did not know God. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's trying to get them back and let them know you were not always in the faith. You were lost at one time. He says, and the way that he describes it is this way. He says that they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. This is a terrifying passage, by the way. One of the most terrifying we find in all of the word of God because he's telling us what our life looks like before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Who, who is it that he's speaking to when he refers to those that by nature are not gods? Well, they're the same that he refers to, he's refers to as the elementary principles of the world. He's actually talking about demons. And the way that we know this is because during the time, during the first century, uh, it, these pagan religions believed that there was a deity behind every element of the world, behind wind, behind the earth, behind the sea. In other words, there was a God of the wind, there was a God of the sea, there was a God of crops in the harvest. And so if you wanted these things to work in your favor, then you had to come and work your way into the favor of that God. And so this is what they were doing. This is, this is how they lived in fear of these gods. They had to do all of the right things. So they were in bondage to them. Well, Paul comes on the scene in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10 and says, look, uh, people are worshiping false gods, which are in fact idols. But the truth of the matter is, let's be clear, there are no such thing as many gods, he says right? There are not many gods. People are worshiping idols, but they're made by man. We call them false gods or other gods, but there's only one true God. He says, but behind every one of these man-made idols, catch this, is a demon. And behind these demons, what they do is when a person, person worships that particular idol, they then are enslaved and they are controlled by the very demon that's behind that particular, that particular uh, idol. And so this is the way that it would work. So think for a moment that we will always worship whatever we think will truly fulfill us, satisfy us, and to make us whole. Isn't that right? We'll go after whatever that is. And it doesn't have to be like an actual idol. That happens a lot in India. You go in and there'll be a little god that's carved out of marble or whatever it is inside of the living room. But in the U.S., we don't have nearly as much of that. We have idols, though, aplenty. 
And the idols that we usually worship are usually idols of, of fame, of, of wealth, of sex, of accomplishment, uh, of, of, of maybe, maybe um, athletics, or it could be some kind of a sporting event or something. It's where we put all of our affections and all of our love. And, and what happens is when we love those things, what the Bible's telling us is behind every single one of those idols is in fact a demon which helps to control and to hold on to you and to hold Hold on to me. This is, this is terrifying, isn't it? I, I mean, this is, he says, and what he tells them to do in this passage is he says, hey, you guys were delivered out of that idolatry. You're no longer controlled by demons. You're controlled by the Spirit of God. You, you've followed him. You've placed your faith in him. And so what he says is, you were delivered, but now you're going back to it. Now you're going back to where you used to be. You're going back into that same slavery again. But when I read this, now I read this and began to study before I went and killed the, the weird deer, all right? And so, so before I killed the weird deer, I was sitting there and I go, this passage makes no sense to me. What does he mean that they're going to go back to the way that it used to be? They used to be pagans and take part in pagan worship, but they're not going back there. What he's, what he's telling them not to do is to become Jewish, He's telling them not to be able to take on the Jewish religion. Why in the world would he say this? Why are they the same? And here's what Paul, in essence, is saying. He says, look, it used to be all about you and to please you and about how you could be fulfilled and how you could receive all that. He goes, and what, what you're doing now is you're just going back to a bunch of religious practices that is the same type of idol that you were worshiping before because it's not about God, it's about you and how you can earn right standing before God. It's idolatry and it's demonic. Now, this is terrifying to me because the truth of the matter is, is for many of us, we could sit back and we can think of idolatry in many ways. And, and, and look, it's not hard for us to think of the guy who maybe is sleeping one off tonight after a major bender last night. Say he left his family and he went into a house of prostitution and he did what they would do there. And then he stuck a needle in his arm and he got drunk. And today he doesn't even know where he is. You know what would be easy for every single one of us to say is, wow, that guy, the demons have got that guy. He's demonically influenced. He's living for self. He's, he's pursuing idols. And you know what idols will always do? They'll always promise you something that they never deliver on. Amen? We get that. How many of you sat there and go, honey, man, you're bad at this. If I could just buy this truck, I'll never ask for another thing again. And what do you do? Well, you know, the truck needs some new tires. Well, the truck needs this. And then eventually it's, hey, I need a new truck. I'll never ask for a thing again. Well, it never ultimately satisfies. And that's what idols will often do. You go and ask the alcoholic, did the alcohol do what it promised to do? And he would have to say, if honest, absolutely not. It never delivered. Instead, it, entr it entrenched me and it enslaved me to this. And so what happens is we, we can see that, but here's what we don't see. And this is what Paul is saying. But at the same exact time, we could understand that there could be the same type of satanic idol worship happening right here in church right now on Sunday morning, but we don't see it. Why? Because when people show up to the church and they begin to tell themselves, hey, here's what we're going to do. Everything else in life doesn't work, but I want my life to be fulfilled. I need something else. And they come to church for the purpose of them being fulfilled and to find something that makes them whole. And it's just religious, practice for, it's religious practices for them. Or they begin to do these things to be able to bring them their self-fulfillment. It's still about them. And it's not about God. And ultimately, he says, it is, it is this, it is literally satanic worship that goes on right in the house of God. This, this makes complete sense then of, of Easter for me. Uh, a lot of people are like, dude, pastor, are you so excited for Easter? I'm like, eh, yeah, I'm excited about Easter. And they're like, what, don't you like Easter? No, 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 don't get me wrong. I love Easter. 
I love the idea of Jesus Christ being crucified and, and, and then raising on the third day. Why? Because it lets me know that my sins have been forgiven and I have a right standing with God again. Amen? That's a wonderful thing. They go, but why don't you get excited for, for, for the Easter services? And I said, well, why do we go from two services to four services? Why do we double in number on that particular day? Why are so many people coming on that day? I'll tell you why. Half of them are coming for idol worship. What they believe is if they just show up on certain days of the year, on Easter or on Christmas, and if they come, and when they come to that, then they're going to be made right before God based on what they do, and that's nothing more than satanic idolatry again. And so on that Sunday morning, what feels strange to me, and I try not to go by my feelings, but now the word of God is telling me something, that there's something to it. You, in one service, have people who genuinely are coming for this purpose. If you're coming for the purpose because you say, I'm grateful for what you've done, I want to learn more about the Savior who has saved me, then right on, that's worship. That's worship unto a holy God. If you're coming today because you think you're going to better yourself or you're going to somehow be good enough by checking off the boxes, by saying I'm faithful in my attendance for God and therefore he's going to love me more, that ultimately is idolatry. And it's either that type of idolatry or it becomes this, and this is a huge movement in the church today, is I couldn't get what I want from the world, so now what I want to do is I want to get the world's stuff from God. And so I'm going to come to God, I'm going to be a good person so that he gives me all the desires of my heart, which is ultimately the idols of the world that I couldn't get before. It's, it's satanic idolatry. And the reason that it's so hard to be able to recognize this is, sorry, that the reason that this religious idolatry is so dangerous is so hard to recognize. Tim Keller brings this very thing out in his commentary on the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, he, or, or in his commentary, he says this. He says, he, he, he refers to the story of the prodigal son. And he says there, he says, you know, there's a prodigal son. He's a young man. He's the youngest of two sons. He has no love for the father whatsoever. All he wants is his father's stuff. Do you remember this story? So he says, give me my inheritance. And then he goes and he blows it on every type of pagan practice he can, he can possibly imagine. But there is an older brother within this story. Do you remember him? And this older brother is the do-good. He's the one that stays home with his dad. He does everything his dad says. But we find out he doesn't have any love for the father either. All he does is he's finding a different way to be able to get the same stuff that his brother was bold enough to be able to ask for and go to live for. He wants his father's stuff. And do you see the danger at the end of the story? The end of the story is that the brother who just said, give me my stuff and goes and lives a pagan life comes to the understanding that this stuff will never ultimately fulfill. And he begins to long for a relationship with the father and he comes back and he humbles himself and repents before the father and the father takes him in. But what happens to, what happens to the older brother? The other brother no, never goes in, never has a relationship with the father. Why? Because he, idolat he all he wants is the father to give him what his idolatrous heart ultimately wants. So it's very hard to be able to recognize. It's very hard to be able to see and distinguish between the two. But what he's saying is, he says, guys, you were locked and you were bound by idolatry and living for the world and tried to, it was all about you. But when you come into the faith, if you still now believe that you're the one that has to earn your salvation or you're the one that has to be right to keep your salvation or you're doing this just to be able to get something out from God, you're just returning from the very place that I had saved you from. And so that's where it's from. And folks, I don't know about you. I don't want to go back there. That's not a life that I'm willing to be able to live again. And so first of all, he says, this is where you were. Second, he talks to him about where God had brought them. Now look at verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. I love that. 
Because what he's doing is I think that Paul is, is maybe speaking to some of the people in Galatia that are just like people here in the south. You ask somebody, a stranger on the side of the road who really isn't born again, hey, do you know God? Sure, I know God. I'm a southerner. I'm an American, aren't I? I love my mama, right? Of course I believe in God. And what they're basically doing is they're saying, what? That I believe in an image of God. I have thoughts of God. I know some things about him. I went to Sunday school one time. But the truth of the matter is, I think Paul understands that some might be saying, hey, yeah, I know God too. And then he turns it and he says, yeah, that's that's an indication that you know him. But what's even more important is that God knows you. That God knows you. Does, does God know you? And here's what he's doing. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. It's, um, salvation is a relationship with God. It's not just a belief system. And so it, it would work like this. Um, some years ago, I was um, uh, sitting with a pastor, and we began to talk, and he, goes, and he began to men- mention Danny Aiken, who was a president of Southeastern Theological. And he goes, you know Danny Aiken, correct? And I go, oh, yeah, I know Danny. I know Danny. Now, let, let me tell you what I meant by that. Uh, I don't really know, mean that I know him, like we're BFFs or that we text back and forth. I just mean that I was in his class one time. He, he tried to give me a B. I argued for an A. He gave it to me, praise God, a gracious man. And so, so but he, he wouldn't know me if he saw me on the side of the street, I, I don't think. And so he, this man ended up going to Danny Aiken. He goes, hey, I ran into a friend of yours, Mike Kwiatkowski. <laughs> and Danny Aiken goes, who? And he goes, Mike Kwiatkowski. You know, he's a pastor down the thing. He goes, yeah, I, yeah, I'm. No, I'm clueless. I, I don't know who that is. And, and, and he came back to me. He goes, bro, you said that you know him. I go, I, I, I don't mean that I know him, know him. I, I just know about him. I know who he is. I know who we're gonna, I, don't, I haven't really. I was so embarrassed by it. You know, fortunately, Danny doesn't know who I am, so it doesn't make any difference, right? <laughs> it, it even reminds me of one time I remember. It, but the, the point there, though, is that it has to be a relationship. Uh, it, it's not about one person knowing each other. If there's going to be a relationship, they both have to know each other. And I think that that's his point. It reminds me another time when I was in college, and uh, we, we went into the cafeteria, and we're all eating, and uh, a friend of mine showed up late. And uh, as he showed up late, he was at the end of the table, and he kind of bowed his head to begin to pray. And, uh, and you shouldn't do this. This is showing the wickedness of my heart. But when he bowed his head to pray, I go, tell him Mike said hello is what I whispered to him when he's about to pray. And he gets done praying, and he, he looks up, and I go, did you tell him? He goes, yeah, but he said he never heard of you. <laughs> so the question today, I think, and this is what Paul is asking, is, is, is not do you know God, because surely in your mind as a southerner, good southerner, you're, you're going to sit there and go, yeah, yeah, I know God. Yep, God and country, I know all that. The question is, does God know you? Because the only way for God to know you is not through you doing a lot of things for God to earn your salvation before him, is rather through his son, Jesus Christ, who has done the work for you. Is the only way to know him is through his son. Jesus Christ himself said, nobody comes to the Father except through, except through me. There's no way for you to know him unless you first know his son. This is one of the questions that Jesus found to be so important. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, there's this really terrifying story about the final judgment when all men and women will stand before God and give an account of their life. And and, and here's what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, and I think you know what it says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is describing is people who have taken part in in a a satanic idolatry of religion, 
who know Christ and know the stories, but they're still clinging to their goodness, to what they can do to be made right before God. And he says, these are all the extraordinary things we did for you, thinking that they would be accepted by God by being a good person. And what does Jesus Christ say? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. So there's a relationship. Now, that's the idea of knowing God in a negative sense. I mean, that's supposed to really drive fear into our hearts to make sure that we examine our own hearts, to make sure that God truly does know us through Jesus Christ. But Paul, writing here, is saying it in a more uh, a good way. He's saying, hey, you used to be worshiping these old, stale, lifeless idols that cared nothing for you. And he goes, but by God's grace, he saved you out. Now you're in a warm, real, actual relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's doing there? Let let me read it this way. I've actually took a part of a quote from a guy by the name of Wilson. And so I want to add that, but I've kind of messed up his quote. So I added to it. So I don't know what to do there. Uh, If you're not really quoting the guy, are you supposed to quote him? But here it is. It says, you went from slavery to idols and could never, that could never love you, care for you, or satisfy you. In fact, you only sought to cause you pain, enslave you, and kill you. But now you have come to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You are known by God who has chosen you before the foundations of the earth, has kept you as the apple of his eye, has hidden you under the shadow of his wing, has written your name in the Lamb's book of life, who wants to give you all the pleasures of God's kingdom. How insane would it be to go from that enslavement to that freedom only to return to that enslavement again? So who is this speaking to? I think it should speak to all of us. But let me give you three succinct groups of people. I think, number one, there could very well be somebody here and your life is just in shambles. You didn't really know where else to turn and so you just thought, I I just need to get to church. I just need to go back to God and maybe God will ultimately clean everything up. And, and I'm telling you that God can clean up lives. You're looking at people in here who are evidence that God has cleaned up, cleaned up marriages, uh, performed miracles, done all of these types of things. But if you're coming just for God to clean you up and make your life better, I've just got to tell you, it doesn't work that way. That's idol worship, not God worship. And you're coming and you, you're just saying, hey, you know, I, I need, here's what I would tell you. Whether you are directly pursuing those idols or whether you're trying to get your idols through coming and being a good Christian person and going to church for God to get you those idols, I just want to let you know they'll never satisfy you. They'll never satisfy. You'll go at them as hard. You will live for them. You will be enslaved for them. You will go at them with everything that you are worth, but at the end of the day, they will not deliver what they promised you. There's a second group of people, and I think that that might be specifically some of us that are just like the Galatians, and, and, and that is, you're truly a born-again believer. You're, you're truly born again. You, you've been freed from that. You're not working, you know, in, in essence, you understand to be saved that you can't earn it. You just have to place your faith in Christ. But the truth of the matter is, is the longer your Christian life goes on, the more you are tending to think that you need to work more to earn God's favor on you, and that is idolatry. It is not Christianity. You cannot do anything more to have God love you. You cannot do anything to have God love you less. Why? Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on what the person of Jesus Christ has done. And don't think for a moment that you and I, as saved as we are by grace through faith alone, that we're not capable at the same time of turning our eye back to different idols in our own life, looking to be satisfied in other things apart from Christ, because we certainly are. 
There's a third group here. And I think that I fall in, in the last category in this category. You know, sometimes there's some folks here that are like, hey, bro, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that I have to do anything to be accepted by God. I get it. It's by grace through faith. And, and, and you get up every day, and you read your Bible, and you do your thing, and you study, and you try to obey. And you know what? Praise God that you're obeying, even though everything within you doesn't want to get up and do it. So praise God for that. But let me just tell you something. That's a hard way to live. You know what happens to me sometimes? And I don't, want, I don't want to hijack this sermon and make it about me because it's not about me. But there are so many times that I find myself throughout the course of the year that I begin to study and all I can think of is I have to come up with a message for the people at Mercy Hill. I have to read my Bible to make sure that I, ha- I can answer the questions for people at Mercy Hill. I got to make sure that, that, that I got these so I can answer the questions to my kids. And what happens is the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ begins to grow cold. I don't want it to grow cold. I want that sensitivity and that love and that, that, that where I, when I get in the word, the teaching is a byproduct of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you gotten to the point to where you're doing a lot of things because you know it's right and no, you don't think you're going to earn right standing before God, but you're going to do it anyway, but just the freshness of your walk with Christ is gone? Just the time of just sitting back and letting him speak to you through the reading of the word, not trying to study or use it for any kind of study, but just go, God, just speak to me. And then, then he responds. Then he responds of that as he's speaking to you to be able to just speak back to him in prayer and just pray to him and, and say, nobody's going to see this. I'm not teaching this to anybody. This is just a walk with God. And I think that this is where God would have us to be. And I think that when we look to the book of Revelation, we say, how do we do that? And, and I think of this, and this, this has been pounding in my heart all week, when we look at his words to the church again at, at Ephesus. And he says to me, he says, you know, I know your works. I, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They're born again. They're doing what is right. But, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That's what Paul is doing. Remember where we were. And he says, and repent and do the works that you did at first. When he says do the works, he was already saying that they were doing the works. I think the work is revive your relationship with God again. Fall in love with him again. Instead of doing all this so that we can perform better, just pursue him, love him for who he is, and enjoy this relationship that we have in honor with him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, my apologies for kind of losing it a little bit. And, uh, but God, you're a gracious God. Lord, we, we come to this text this morning and again, how, how we can even take part in idol worship. And, and, but it's all masked in religion. But it's not really for you or from you, it's It's just us either trying to get what we want from you or it's just us trying to demonstrate our righteousness before you. God, coming to church is a wonderful thing. Reading the Bible is a wonderful thing. 
All those are great and wonderful and awesome things, and celebrating Easter is a wonderful thing. But God, we have to determine what our motivation is in that. Is it to make ourselves right before you? Or is it out of a celebration of worship because we have been made right before you through your Son, Jesus Christ? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Before we take the Lord's Supper, I'm going I'm to open up the altar just for a minute. I'm going to be here. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, if, if, if you want to know more about Christ, we want to share that with you. I want to be clear with that. If you're just to the point going, hey, bro, there's some idols I need to be able to just repent of, you, you do that wherever you are. But if you need prayer, you come as we take some time to reflect.